Welcome back to another episode of What the Forensics. I'm Journey, and I'm joined by my lovely co-hosts, Rebecca and Nicole. Today, Rebecca is going to tell us about Diego Henrique Gomez de Rocha, and Nicole is going to tell us how ballistics was used to link him to the many crimes he committed. We apologize in advance for any mispronunciations of names. We're trying our best, but some of them are tricky. Before we begin, we just want to give a listener's discussion that there will be discussions of attempted suicide, sexual assault, and murders. Buckle up, folks and get ready to learn. Diego Henrique Gomez de Rocha was born on the 4th of February in 1988 in Goiania, uh, state of Goias, Brazil. Um, There's not much information known about his early life, but what is known is that he was raised by his grandparents and he led a pretty normal childhood until the age of 11 when he was sexually assaulted by his neighbor and he claims that this is when his murderous urges began. Furthermore, he said that the urge for his murder intensified after he was rejected by multiple women. Uh, He felt he couldn't find love, so he just felt really angry about that. At the time of his crime spree, he was working as a security guard, which was believed to have actually helped him in his crimes because he was seen as, uh, like, trustworthy. So his crimes spanned from 2011 to 2014, and he targeted only women, homosexual men, and homeless people. Um, Besides the classification of people that he targeted, he seemingly did it at random. Besides being homosexual men, women, or homeless people, he didn't pick victims based on anything else. He just kind of drove up to them at random and killed. So he has admitted to killing 39 people but he 39 yeah that's a lot it's even crazier that 39 people in the span of three years 2011 to 2014 holy cow yeah so he was he was really active and of his known victims all of them except for one, were killed in 2014. So they said that 2014 was really, like, his nine-month crime spree because he was just going and killing, like, every other day. That is wild. Mm -hmm. So his very first victim, like I said, was killed in 2011, uh, and he was Diego Martins Mendez. He was only 16 years old. Gomez de Rocha lured him into the forest on the pretense that he uh, was going to get sex uh, because Diego Martins Mendez was a homosexual man. Um, And when he lured him into the forest, he instead strangled him to death. So that's where this started, unfortunately. And as he killed 39 people, I can't really go into the detail of all of them. Um, But his final victim, her name was Anna Gomez, she was only 14 years old, and she was shot while she was waiting for her bus to pick her up. As I can't go into the detail of all of them, I will mention that despite the fact that both his first and last victim were quite young, uh, the age range of his victims did vary significantly. It went from ages 14 to 51. So he really didn't discriminate. It's believed that he actually killed at least 22 women and 17 men 
just to get a bit more specific. Uh, and with many of his victims, he would ride up to them on his motorcycle with something covering his face, like a balaclava, and shout robbery, and then shoot them, and then drive away without stealing anything. Oh, that's very interesting. Yeah. That kind of reminds me of how people will sometimes, like, I just on mass shooter mindset for some reason, um, where people will, like, scream fire or, like, pull the fire alarm to get them to run out. And then they just, like, bah, 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 bah. I didn't know? think about that. But, yeah. So it could have been something similar, like, oh, robbery. They may have just, like, put their hands up and then it's an easy target for them. Yeah, I didn't think about that. But that's a good point. Yeah. Hmm. Despite the fact that he didn't know his victims personally, he did target the different categories of people in very specific ways. So, for example, he had three methods of killing, I'll say. Um, he would either shoot the victims with a uh, 38 caliber revolver, uh, strangle them, or stab them. However, it was noted that all of his female victims... Um, and homeless victims were shot. All of the homosexual victims were strangled, and victims who were prostitutes were all stabbed. Interesting. Yeah. yeah so very weird. Yeah, he was very specific with how he killed, but he didn't discriminate with who. It was very bizarre. When he was caught, uh, when he was apprehended, it was actually just, like, minutes after killing his last victim, Anna Gomez. Um, however, he wasn't arrested for that crime. What he was actually arrested for uh, was because the police noticed that he was riding a motorcycle with a fake license plate. And after doing some background searching on him, found that he was currently on trial for stealing license plates in the same city. So they were like, oh... He's still doing license plate crimes. We got to bring him in. And they're just like, oh, up? you killed people too. Yeah, Maybe like we'll... how will charge you for that? I don't know how he was dumb enough to get caught for faking his license plate, but he he wasn't apprehended for the killings. That makes no sense to me. He, like, just took a piece of printer paper and wrote, like, <laughs> the license plate number. I don't know how they look in Brazil. And then just, like, taped it to his motorcycle. I would love that. Would I really <laughs> hope that was the case. I really hope that was the case. That would be hilarious. So, after he was arrested, uh, police began interrogating him uh, regarding the license plate crimes. And during this interrogation... He confessed to killing 39 people. I'm not sure if he's still undergoing trial because the last updated information uh, says that his last trial was in 2018. But the source I found was continually updating through his trials and he has been acquitted of a few of the murders. So it's very possible. How did he get acquitted for the murders? I guess if they don't believe that he... Yeah, there's no evidence, but... Yeah, so... Just getting back to his interrogation real quick, um, he confessed to killing these 39 people, which was a little weird to the police because, first of all, he wasn't in for questioning about murder. <laughs> oh, and, classic. And also because the police thought that all of these victims had actually 
died at the hands of the drug cartel or local gangs. They didn't think it was one person. They believed it was organized crime groups that were killing them. Well, I guess if there's a set way of killing each specific like group, I guess you could say, I could understand that. And I assume the cartel is much larger in Brazil than it is here in Canada. That yeah. we know of. Maybe Canadians are up to some sketchy shit. I mean, shoot. Anyways. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I can, I can definitely see how that would be a plausible, like, oh, people are dead. Let's, it's the cartel. Yeah, especially considering, like, some of his victims, for example, all of the young women that were killed, like, in their teens, were all specifically shot in the chest. However, other victims who were shot were shot in the back or in the head or other places, but all of the young female victims were shot in the chest. Do you think there's, like, meanings of the different ways that he killed his victims? I haven't read anything whether or not there have been, like, meanings, but I think it could be a possibility. I mean, considering he had specific ways to kill the different groups of people, he probably had a reason for that, too. Yeah, that maybe we he couldn't, like, pull, bring himself to kill others in a specific way. Like, with... I don't know. Yeah. If it's easier to shoot someone if there's some weird attachment... And not have to look at their face. And This is a little yeah. off topic. It's still about him. Uh, it was also noted that the woman he's engaged to looked strikingly similar to a lot of his victims. I so, would not like that if I was engaged to him. I would not I'd either. Be very but that afraid. Just, yeah, but that just further raises the question, like... Did he look for a specific type of person? Like, we really don't know. Yeah. After he confessed to all of these killings and the police were like, what? What do you mean it was you? It was probably a gang. Um, They searched his home to find evidence that he could be telling the truth. Um, And in their home, they found a motorcycle, which was very, well, I guess not in his home, but like at his home, they found a motorcycle which is important, I forgot to mention, because most of the shootings were committed as drive-bys on a motorcycle. Oh. So, when searching his home, they found a motorbike. Uh, they also found stolen plates, which, again, made sense because he was, con- he was found that he was stealing plates. Uh, and they also found a thirty-eight caliber revolver, which was important because a thirty-eight caliber revolver was the type of weapon used in all the shootings. So ballistics tests were ran on the revolver, and it was found that this gun was, in fact, the one used in all of the murders he had confessed to that involved shootings. Uh, and Nicole will go over later uh, what running a ballistics test means and exactly what ballistics is. But based on all of this evidence, he was soon arrested obviously in relation to the murders, Um, but he attempted suicide in his cell shortly after by breaking a light bulb and using the broken glass to cut himself. But before completing it, I guess that's the way to phrase it, before completing it, he was stopped by a guard, Um, so he obviously is not dead now. Sort of unrelated to like importance but 
During the investigation, police said that Gomez had said some of the following things to them at separate times. Um, So at one point, he said that he did not know his victims and he acted out of an inner fury that he felt against everything that only subsided when committing murder. He asked the police if he would be charged or held criminally responsible if he were to kill fellow inmates. So he's basically asking permission to kill his inmates. And reportedly, at some point early in early on one of the mornings, he called the wardens. I don't know if there's phones in their jail cells. It was unclear. But he supposedly called the warden and told them that he was in the mood to kill. He kind of sounds like, like Dexter. Right? Yeah. Like, I'm getting serious. Like, ooh, dark passenger vibes. Yeah, absolutely. He's like, ooh, I just gotta, I gotta fix the craving. It's like a drug addiction, but murder. Yeah. All I can imagine is them having those, like, tin can telephones. Remember when you had the string attached in the middle, just, like, connecting to the warden's office? And she'd be like, sir, you hear me? Wanting to kill. (laughs) Waiting for him to reply. (laughs) Like, for me, that seems more reasonable than just having, like... A cell phone in a in a cell or having a phone that he can reach out and grab. Like, I just, I can't wrap my head around it because I'm like, why would you have that in a jail cell? I can't either. Like, no articles that I have read specified where he called the wardens from or if it was even during interrogation. I just ins- assume, considering they knew it was him that called and it was during investigation. So I don't know what it is. Did you think he just, like, yelled across the jail, like, hey, warden, (laughs) I'm in the mood to get All very real possibilities that I didn't think of. (laughs) Of course, he was investigated, and of course, he went to trial. Um, But he has so far faced a total of 33 trials, and I'm unsure whether he'll face more or not. But in these 33 trials, he was convicted of murder in 30 of them. So in three of them, he was acquitted. Although in one of them, the jury stated that they believed he was responsible for the death, but they acquitted him anyways. That seems backwards. It does. That one was really weird to me. Um, My only guess for it is the fact that He's absolutely not getting out of prison in the next 10 lifetimes because cumulatively, currently, he's sentenced to 708 years and four months in prison. So my my only guess is that the jury was like, well, he was responsible, but does he really need more time in prison? Yeah, fair enough. But yeah, so Gomez Arrocha is... Still sitting in a prison in Brazil to this day. Um, and that is his story of how he su- confessed to 39 murders, but so far has been convicted of 30 of them. So have they, like, I know he's been convicted of 30, but have they, like, matched him to 30? Like, do they have solid evidence or is it just, like... Yeah, we're going to convict you. You've done a couple of these. There's evidence of a few, but... I think a lot of the ones that were he was convicted of did have the ballistics evidence. I am... 
the article was so long because it was like a small paragraph for every trial. So I'm unsure of the victims of like stabbings and strangulations. If he was charged because they were like, yeah, he's probably guilty. Or if they had more solid evidence. That's fair. But I know for, for the the gunshot victims, they definitely had the ballistics evidence to back that up. Yeah. Perfect. Thank you so much, Rebecca. That was very interesting. And now, Nicole, did you want to tell us a little bit more about ballistics and how it was used in this case? Yeah. So I just wanted to start off kind of with the history of ballistics because it's kind of interesting, kind of not. I don't know. I thought it was pretty neat. Um, Ballistics itself is um, it's just defined as the study of the flight path of projectiles. And in forensic investigations, it is the study of um, when there are guns present at a crime scene. So that would be like forensic ballistics investigation kind of thing. So as well, the term forensic ballistics, ballistic fingerprinting, and forensic firearm examination all mean the same thing. They just like to not be on the same page with language and standardized whatever, uh, and they just confuse it all with that. So, yeah, death, as I mentioned in um, crime scenes, it helps reconstruction, and it's considered a pattern evidence, which I wouldn't have consider, like thought of at first, but because of the patterns that are left on the casings and the bullets, it's considered that way. Because I thought it was like trace evidence because of gunshot residue, something like that. That's what I've, I would have thought as well. That's interesting. Yeah, would, and I would, thought would, go ahead. would just studying like the gunshot residue be considered trace evidence or would that also be considered pattern? Do you know? I think if it was solely gunshot residue, I think that would be trace. That makes sense. But like I'm not sure when they're both combined, is it trace and pattern? Is it pattern? Anyways, so back in the day, long before our time, Um, The barrels and bullets of guns were actually made by hand um, before mass production because that used to not be a thing, surprisingly. So this meant that each gun was unique and you could trace bullets back to the specific gun itself. And this is where the foundation of forensic fingerprinting, um, like bullet fingerprinting, emerged. So firearms and other evidence because of its similarity with human fingerprinting, the marks were very similar to human finger marks, which I thought was really interesting. So the first case documented um, using a bullet in a crime kind of thing. This was in 1835, which I thought was shocking. I was like, oh, yeah, that's early. Um, So the first firearm was recorded in 1364, That is so much earlier than I thought. I was like, yeah, maybe like 1870s there were guns. No, 1364. And like, these are firearms, so not like the guns we have. But I think it said like ancient Chinese method. I don't know if that's ancient at that point, but old Chinese methods. They had like projectiles out of these things. So it's a flight path of a projectile. So it's considered a firearm. But yeah, that was super shocking when I read 1835 and then 1364. 
This individual, Henry Goddard, he linked a bullet to the culprit of this crime in 1835. And so the bullet had a defect on the surface, which didn't seem to be from the barrel or the result of an impact. So it was more of a manufacturing defect when they made it by hand, something happened. It was very unique to that. And he assumed that the shooter would have made his own bullet. So finding the cast would be super helpful to confirm the shooter. When he went to the suspect's house, he found the mold that was used and matched the bullet and he was then arrested. Another case, 25 years later, in 1860, R.V. Richardson, there was, this wasn't really bullets, but it still had to do with firearms and is considered ballistics. But there was a newspaper wadding which was used as a major piece of evidence. So in the gun, it was a two-barreled muzzle-loading pistol. And I guess newspaper wadding was, I don't know if it was inside, but it was recovered from the murder site. And it also matched the wadding from the victim's wound and the suspect's home. Interesting. So what I'm is not- wadding? It's just like a bunch of newspapers. From my understanding, it's just like newspapers pushed together. Oh. Um, I, I wish I knew more about the history of guns. This is very interesting. Yeah. yeah. I feel like, yeah, guns are so confusing, but they're very interesting. <laughs> okay, so what? So the newspaper would have been used to line something so a wadding the definition is a soft or thick material used to line garments or pack fragile items so say you bought a mug from the store and they wrap it in newspaper that would be a wadding Hmm. so this not what i had envisioned yeah i was like why are you packing newspaper down the barrel of your gun that doesn't make any sense but whatever it's 1800s what everything makes sense back then And as production gradually increased and led to mass productions of guns, this is when the word, air quote, match, started to become more difficult in the science because they were less unique. There weren't these certain characteristics that could be um, found with individuals' own homemade guns. In 1902, so 40 years-ish in the future, Examination using magnifying glasses on the bullet was actually first done by Oliver Wendell Holmes, which I kind of giggle at because his last name's Holmes. And I'm like, Sherlock Holmes, is he who he's about? But no. And he ended up going on to be the Justice of U.S. Supreme Court in however many years later. So what he did was he fired a test bullet into cotton wool and then he compared the what they're called striations. So the marks left from the barrel, he compared those to the ones on the bullet that were recovered from a victim during an autopsy, which I thought was really interesting. So he had his little magnifying glass full Sherlock Holmes and compared the two. Uh, 10 years later in 1912 Paris, photos were taken by an individual called Victor Balthazard And he focused on the circumferences of bullets found at crime scenes. So he was able to photograph them and did some measurements. He would make the photos larger, compared the photograph markings with test fire bullets from the gun, suspect's gun. 
And his theory was that machine tools never left the same mark. Which I can understand, but in reality, it's it's I also tricky to feel like yeah, now we've kind of gotten to the point where everything's fairly the same. Yeah, yeah. But it's like, like 1912, it's yeah. I guess like now machines are they're pretty standard. They make everything the same. But I guess machines back then would be much more. I don't know the word I'm looking for, but I think machines in 1912 aren't as good as what we have now. Yeah, that's definitely for sure. And at this time, you know, when imaging came out, whatever, it became more difficult for investigators to actually compare the two side by side because they didn't have a microscope that could do this. So what they would do is they would look at the test fire bullet, keep that image in their head, and then look at the suspect bullet or like the crime scene bullet. And then they would try and have to go back between what they remember to what they just saw and make comparisons that way. That's a really inefficient way of doing it, didn't they? I know the cameras weren't great in 1912, but they could could they have still used it? Like, you know, taking a picture through the microscope or through the magnifying glass and at, at least they would have somewhat of an image to compare to yeah i think it's tough because if you take a photo of it because the markings are so microscopic yeah you can see them with a magnifying glass but you're not going to be able to see them as well as you would with a microscope so you can't get a picture in that sense especially considering how much worse the cameras were back then so that makes yeah exactly obviously the um Validity and reliability of the science was not good back then. And there was kind of a shift in this science in 1915. They, they as in police, whoever, the system, almost wrongfully convicted an individual named Charles Stylo. So he was charged with shooting two people with a 22 caliber pistol or a I don't know how they say it, 22 caliber pistol. Um, So it was like his employer and his employer's housekeeper or something. And the investigator, I don't know why, but he said, look, I'm going to relook at the evidence just to make sure, I guess. Looked at it once more with a microscopy expert, and they confirmed that the bullets at the crime scene actually didn't match Stylo's gun. Which is shocking because the ballistics... like examination in the first place was what convicted him of it. So I guess there was some error because they had to go through, you know, retain this mental image and compare it to that. Like, yeah, they look similar. So it was probably, I mean, I say probably, but it was most definitely examiner error then. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. This individual, Charles Waite, he began cataloging the manufacturing data on guns and ammunition because he realized that how bad this could be if people are being wrongfully convicted for this type of science. Like, it just didn't settle well with him and he wanted to try and fix things. So he also included foreign sources or markings since I guess a lot of the guns were imported back then. I don't know if they're still imported, what the difference are with imported guns. It didn't really say. 
And he, along with some colleagues, they created the Bureau of Forensic Ballistics in New York City. And one of the colleagues, so Philip Gravel or Philippe Gravel, he developed the comparison microscope to help with comparing them at the same time. So this had a split screen. If they were able to look at two bullets, two casings at the same time and didn't have to make this mental um, retaining image. That's very helpful. Yeah, so it definitely helped advance the science. And even though ballistics had been used in cases prior to this, the first significant use of this specific microscope, the um, comparison, was actually the St. Valentine's Day Massacre in 1929. Really? So, yeah, for those that don't know, since I didn't know this going into our course this year, this is when gunmen... For Al Capone, they pretended to be police officers, went into a rival's area, and shot and killed seven people. The bullets and casings that were found at the scene were examined. Al Capone denied any involvement, as of course he would do. And they were actually able to identify the weapons as a 12-gauge shotgun and two Tommy guns that were used. I always hear Tommy guns, but like, what is a Tommy gun? Because all I think about when I hear it is, like, the old-timey criminals, like, holding two. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) We used to have a Tommy gun Nerf gun. So, it's, um, yeah, it's it's exactly what you think of. So, it's a big machine gun. It's a submachine gun. So, it's that big gun that you see them holding, and then that round disc underneath that holds the ammunition, I guess. So that allows them to easily fire. And uh, scientists were actually eventually able to match the crime scene evidence, so the bullets and the casings, to the evidence they obtained from homes of Al Capone's men. So they went to their houses and they're like, look, like Al Capone's saying you guys had nothing to do with it. But we know you guys. It's your rival. We're going to search your house. I guess that was what went down. So then they matched them. He obviously never ended up getting convicted for it. There was a huge thing with that. Anyways. Aside from that. Um, so a couple years after this massacre. When you know nothing really came out of it. The FBI lab was established in 1932. And one of the colleagues that helped create the Bureau of Forensic Ballistics, his name was Major Calvin Goddard. He was actually the first one to train the very first firearm identification professional. So with that unit came the first kind of professional and it stemmed out from that. Hmm. And it's interesting, too, I learned that guns have unique characteristics depending on who manufactured it, even today. Um, So Colts, they produce, I guess, what's called a left twist groove pattern, and others produce right twists. So when you shoot the gun, the pattern of what's typically seen, and there's four to eight grooves, which I kind of, I'll discuss more about how the grooves are formed, but... Yeah, it's usually between four to eight grooves on a bullet, and the average being six. Is this done for identification purposes, like that companies make them differently? I want to think so, but I also want to say, because Colt is such a well-known, 
they're like i want to be unique i don't want to be like all of the other gun companies yeah so it's hard to say but kind of the science behind it when a bullet is fired um i didn't know any of the i was just like yeah a gun shoots a bullet and it kills people so (laughs) when a bullet is fired it gets blasted down the barrel which passes by these ridges and grooves of the barrel and this is what causes the bullet to spin and increase shot accuracy and these grooves and ridges on the inside of the barrel are what also cause the microscopic markings on the bullet because the metal's so soft that when it passes at such a high speed it like scrapes in and makes these uh, markings And these are what are called the striations, as I kind of talked about before. And as so as the bullet moves forward, the cartridge is what explodes backwards with the same force against a piece that absorbs recoil. And this is called a breech face, which I didn't know. It was like, it's recoil. Okay. And it's interesting because an impression of the breech face is actually made on the base of the cartridge case when it's shot out which I didn't realize I just thought all cartridges were the same whatever that's very interesting yeah Yeah. I didn't know that yeah the theory is that these striations can be or are unique and reproducible because they're so reproducible this is kind of where the term ballistic fingerprints came from because the uniqueness relates to human fingerprints as we just kind of talked about in the previous episode and an assessment is made on how similar the two are together so like fingerprinting there is no set standard of the number of characterizing features between jurisdictions between countries and whatever so it's kind of similar with ballistics you can find certain striations and markings but the number and comparisons are going to differ between where you are in the world. And inferences, shockingly, I didn't realize so much could be inferred, but you can figure out or make guesses, educated guesses on what weapon was used, the distance at which it flew or was shot at, the velocity of the bullet, the angle of firing, and you can pull all of that together to give you information about the shooter. So like his height, where they were, all of that stuff. That's so ballistics so cool. can this can tell us a lot more than I thought it could. Yeah, and I didn't realize that because, but it makes sense. I know when we did our blood spatter, we did like the angle. We found the angle and all of that. And I guess it's very similar and used in the same sense with ballistics to give you that sort of information. Yeah, I guess it would make sense considering blood splatter is still technically a projectile. Yeah. It's just a fluid one (laughs) yeah so the like the dynamics behind it are still very similar it's just fluid dynamics differ a lot from bullets dynamics they created a catalog of standard shooting procedures from the atf and fbi which is basically just various striations and they take like 3d imaging and topography or all of these different technological words of these bullets and so this information is then stored in a computer another thing with ballistics is that yeah they can say it's a air quote match 
or not. We've had a lot of discussion in class that match should not be a term in forensic sciences because technically there's no perfect match ever. Um, but there's no way to numerically express the strength of these findings, which makes sense. You can say, yes, they look similar. They have similar characteristics, but you can't, you can give maybe an 80% confidence rate, like eyewitness testimony, but that's all you're really going to get. But the National Institute of Standards and Technology, so the NIST, they are developing statistical methods that will help with numerical testimony. Working on technologies and softwares to help this, My, I'm too uneducated to fully understand the technology behind it. But there's low error rates in the initial testing. And the good thing with this is that it's relatively easy to explain, which is very important when you're testifying in court. So the jury is able to understand. Yeah, it's great that they're developing statistical methods, but it honestly surprises me that they haven't gotten around to it before now. Yeah, and I think it's just difficult on it because it's like the same with fingerprinting like you can like we don't know exactly how unique every fingerprint is because we can't fingerprint seven billion people yeah and everyone in the grave yeah well they won't have fingerprints at this point unfortunately but yes um i think it's hard to just put a number on it because it is so subjective to the examiner like sure you could say there are 10 matches when you go to court and you're an expert witness but 10 out of how many possible ones like it's very difficult to put a number on it but these this development is apparently putting a numerical score onto how similar the two cartridge or bullets are to each other didn't go into detail really how they were doing that. It's just being developed. Hopefully it's going to be a thing in the future. And their um, development kind of is similar to match probabilities in DNA. So they're able to estimate, you know, what are the chances of getting a random match if they do do this procedure? Which I thought was really interesting. Um, yeah. I know in forensic anthropology, you... When you're determining the sex of the skeleton, you have, like, a one to four, one being, like, female, four being male, and then you're, like, two probable male, three probable female. Um, There's one number that I'm missing, apparently. Um, But it changes for every person. Like, how can we ensure that each person is going to see each striation as a certain number? Yeah, I don't know. That's the tricky thing, too. And not all types of guns produce the same striations. So they're going to differ in that sense, too. It's always going to pose an issue in court. Trying, to, You can say all you want that it matches, but how well does it match? And I guess there's also the question of, like, I know that the bullet, like get striations because it's a soft metal going through the at a high mm-hmm. velocity but is there a chance that like over time depending on how much the gun was used that the markings inside the gun are worn down too so like what if they're like a 10 year old bullet and they're trying to do uh 
testing with a gun in present day, do we know that the gun inside hasn't changed? I don't know. And I, I couldn't find anything relating to that. I personally would say yes. Like it just makes sense for it to wear yeah. down over time. But I think the striations would be similar. They would just differ in depth, if that makes sense. That Yeah, that does make sense. Um, yeah, which is very difficult. And I don't know how often they're doing um, tests on like really old guns um but it, it it's tricky too because people can mess with their own guns to try and prevent identification and sometimes this actually helps with identification but it confuse it can confuse investigators until they find that gun so it's just very difficult and there's so many components that go into it too because you know there's serial numbers that are associated with the guns well people can scratch that off and yeah, there's a lot that could be tampered with, unfortunately. Anyways, as we kind of talked about, um, ballistics can also involve this gunshot residue too. So it's composed of just a bunch of different like chemicals and compounds. And typically they're found on suspects, on like their hands, clothes, kind of in the surrounding area. And that can kind of be linked to the crime as well. On the topic of gunshot residue... When I was writing my, like, our written assignment for forensics this week, one of the pieces of evidence that was used against this person was that there was one granule of gunshot residue found on his shirt. Holy moly, that's nothing. Like, how can you narrow it down to being like, okay, it was just one granule? Like, what? What is that? Yeah, the thing that baffles me with that is... Gunshot residue in itself has, like, over 10 different compounds and chemicals to it. So, like, how are you going to get that from... Yeah, so it contains antimony, barium, lead, aluminum, sulfur, tin, calcium, potassium, silicon, and chlorine. Chlorine, sorry. Plus, the casings are typically brass, which is copper and zinc. So there's so many chemicals and components... So if you were to find, like, chlorine, was it, like, a little drop of chlorine? And they were like, oh, well, chlorine's in gunshot residue, so... I mean, my first thought would be, like, was he near a pool? Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure the chlorine's different from a pool and a gun. Very different. (laughs) But, like, the element's still there. It's still an element. Yeah, that bath... Like, a single granule of gunshot residue. I don't always understand the process in an investigator's mind, but I'm not an investigator. The, pa- the fact much. that they were able to use that as well as evidence, just single evidence piece. In our guy's case, um, Gomez de, Ro- de Rocha, that's very white pronunciation, I apologize. Um, Yeah, what they would have done was if they were able to get bullets from the scenes, they could look at the striations, find the markings. Then they got his gun somehow, could do a couple test fires, then match the two. So that's how, in a criminal case, long story short, that's how they do it. The gist of it is... 
they find some bullets and then they find a suspect gun and then they shoot it and go, yeah, they look similar. And then they bring it to court. But in reality, it's a lot more than that. Yeah, because one, you need a suspect first. You can't just go around asking everyone to shoot their gun. Like, it'd be a fun day on the job, but you're not going to get that. <laughs> I think this is why you you definitely shouldn't be submitting it as the only form of evidence. At all. Absolutely. Yes, I agree. Well, that was super interesting. I now know more about ballistics, which will help me in school and maybe in everyday life. Who yes. knows? See you, Gun. Let me examine it. I love it. Well, thank you, Nicole. That was very, very interesting. Um, okay, I have a fun fact for you guys. I did not know. Fun facts. Okay, did you know? That luminol, no. like what is used to reveal the presence of blood, has the same chemiluminescence that fireflies use to glow. I love that. Oh, yeah. I think we... Did we learn that? I didn't know I that. I thought that. that was very interesting. I if we learned that... it, I forgot. And I'm learning it for the first time. What's... And I love it. What's his name? The detective that came in and gave us a lecture about what they kind of do with luminol. I think he like briefly mentioned it and my mind just went to the princess and the frog, the Disney one with the redneck firefly. And I'm like, yeah, this makes sense. <laughs> I love it. That's fantastic. Just briefly, another fun fact. So the first recorded use of the firearm, because this was interesting to all of us, 64 and 1380 handguns are known across Europe. And in the 1400s, what's called the matchlock gun appears. So before these guns, guns were fired by holding a burning wick to a touch hole in the barrel, which would ignite the powder inside. You use one hand for firing and one hand to steady the gun. Which I thought oh. was interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Could you imagine just rolling up on the battlefield, candle in hand? Oh my gosh. That's literally what they had to do with cannons. It's literally just a small cannon. They made a small cannon. A handheld cannon. That's all they did. Rifles appeared in 1540. And now it's estimated that about 300 million guns in the U.S. are owned by a third of the population. Yeah. Oh my god. That's a lot. That's a big step up. Which really... Shows the importance of ballistic testing. If there, if only a third of the U.S. population owns that many guns, or like it belongs to only a third, we need people making sure that they that's, are caught. That's definitely. a very alarming statistic, right? They, you don't. You. I mean, of course, this is all just opinion, but you don't need guns on your belt at all times the population in 2019 for the u.s was 328.2 million so that's about um that's I don't like do math. 100 million people owning 300 million guns 300 so three guns per person in a third of the u.s oof right I'm not going to say, yeah, I'm not going to say more on that because then we're just going to get into opinion based. (laughs) Here's why guns. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's a whole but, other. Um, whole All right. So for next week's topic, um, the number generator gave me 88. And if I look in my big book of serial killers, 88 gives us Ivan Malott. He's known as the backpacker murderer or the backpacker killer. Murdered from 89 to 93 in New South Wales and Australia. A piece of his capture was related to eyewitness identification. So there is a lot to discuss about that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. This episode is going to be interesting. And that's kind of like, I mean, Rebecca and I are in psych, so it's our little, it's our specialty. Oh, we could talk for hours about how awful it is, but not psych in itself. Notifications. Awesome. So, Rebecca, where can people find us? People can find us on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook at What the Forensics, or Twitter at WT Forensics PC, or you can find all of our information on our website, whatthefrensics.ca, or contact contact us with any concerns or questions or maybe things you want us to cover in the future um, at whattheforensics at gmail.com. This has been another episode of What the Forensics. Thank you so much for joining us and we'll see you next time. Just a reminder to everyone that we are not professionals in the forensic science field. We are just students who are learning and want to share what we are learning with our listeners. We're trying to give you the most accurate information, but we are human and we can make mistakes. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope to see you next week.